Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. How's it going out there, you guys? How you doing? I'm feeling pretty good. Because the sports in L.A. is doing pretty good right now. Pretty good. We got the Dodgers in the World Series. As I record this, the World Series has not yet started. So you're hearing this a couple of days after there have been some results. I have no idea. See, I can't get too snotty right now and start bragging because you guys will know what will happen. If the Dodgers have lost like three in a row, you hear this. It's like, what's wrong with Larry? So I'm rooting for my Dodgers. Hope they win. But, of course, my Lakers. LeBron and the Lakers. It's going to be rough, you guys. It's going to be rough. But I got you. We got this. Let's just stay in there and uh, let's keep playing tough. The Lakers look pretty interesting now. Um, this is post the Rondo spit fight with uh, CP3. I know all of you guys are not into sports. I apologize. Always. You have no idea what I'm talking about, which is fine. CP3 is not a Star Wars character. He is a player in the National Basketball Association. One of the Lakers claims he didn't spit on him, but he spit on him, caused the fight. And Rondo would... He would fight with an image of himself. That's how hard he is to get along with. Rondo will fight with anybody. So he's the Laker player that did it. A couple of Lakers are out. Lakers are having a little rough go. As of this recording, they have not yet won. But hopefully they will have won by the time this airs. But in terms of the season, um, I have some patience. I think we're going to do okay. Howsomever, guys, there are some other things that are going on that are much more important right now. Oh, by the way, on today's show, I talked to Doris Kearns Goodwin a little while ago, and we're going to be playing that live conversation that we did out in Riverside to a very nice audience and talked about her book covering uh, the four presidents. Um, <laughs> like, there have only been four. Covering the four presidents. That's all there's been is four presidents. Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. She, of course, worked in the Johnson administration, and it was a good conversation. Really good stuff. A lot of that history stuff that I like. But, you know, she's amazing, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She has so much knowledge of the personal foibles and things that happen. You know, she puts the flesh and blood on these uh, sometimes mythic figures. And it always relates to today, all of it. So I hope you enjoyed that. It's a good conversation coming up. It's a live conversation that we did before. But so before we get to that, I just want to say this one word, guys. Boat. Boat. Boat, 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 boat. As Obama said, don't boo, boat. Now is the time. Okay, the time for talking shit. All, you know, protesting, snarkiness, speaking up, all this voice, 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 fine. Now voice needs to turn into vote. Vote, vote, vote. There are a lot of races around the country right now that are up for grabs. And some of them can really make some differences. At this time, I mean, it doesn't look like much is going to happen in the Senate, um, but you never know. But in the House, there really looks like a good chance. We may have Florida's first black governor. That would be amazing. Georgia may have its first female black governor, which would be unbelievable. Um, There's a lot of... um, There's some... Um, LGBTQ, I brought out letters. I always forget all the letters, so I'm cautious about saying all the letters in that. Uh, candidates running around, people of color, all these stuff, some really good candidates running. Guys, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in Texas. If Texas, if the Republicans, even though I know 
they have a complicated relationship with Ted Cruz. Um, even Texans, I think. I think Texans do throw up in their mouths when they vote for Ted Cruz. The people that support Ted Cruz, you know. Um, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Because how can you not? I think you have to throw up in your mouth. I think Ted Cruz throws up in his mouth just a little bit when he votes for himself. And believe me, he does vote for himself. Um, it was hilarious when Trump came to stump for Ted Cruz and they're shaking hands. I mean, that really sums up the state of gutter swamp politics. I mean, Trump just disgustingly made fun of Ted Cruz, disgustingly made fun of him. He humiliated him, talked about his wife, the most horrible things a politician can do. Your fellow politician, I mean, you're fighting the other person, fine. Take swipes at them, fine. But he was calling his wife ugly, said his dad was involved in the JFK assassination. Crazy time. And then to see them shaking hands and Ted Cruz's eyes are just like looking down like a humiliated dog or something, you know, was so pathetic. Um, seriously, Texas, if you vote for this guy again, I really don't know what to say. I mean, I think it's ironic that Austin has no water to drink right now <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, just the feeling of, uh, you know, not having the basic of nourishment when someone like Ted Cruz is the is the face of your state. Ah, man. Ah, mm. So come on, Texas. How about that for an upset? If, uh, you know, I, like this whole Beto O'Rourke thing, I really don't care much of a Beto O'Rourke. He seems interesting, interesting guy. I just want Ted Cruz to lose. I really do. I really just want him to lose. I just want to see him go down. There's a lot of schadenfreude behind this. So please, people in Texas, vote that down. Vote it down. So this election night is going to be very, very interesting. Here's the, something that I want to tell people, too. As important as this election night is, whatever happens, don't get discouraged. Because it is just the beginning. There's another election right on the heels of, of this election, of course, in two years. It's going to come so fast. But any way that I, you know, as a Democrat, as somebody who's on the left, I want Trump's agenda to be slowed down, especially any crazy agenda. Um, I am a person who is more towards the middle personally. There are some things I'm like, whatever. But other things I'm like, no, motherfucker. Um, I won't go into that right now. But for the most part, I just want Trump stopped, to be honest with you. It's not even a Trump agenda. I just want him gone. I'm just tired of him. I just think we've had enough. I'm really, really just tired of him. But I'm the one, I'm the asshole that predicted he's going to get reelected. And it's so sad. I hope it doesn't happen. But this is the first chance to show how we really feel as Americans come out in force. Um, young people, come on out. You know, let's get to that ballot box. That's my main message today. I want to let us all know that this is it, man. Let's get out. Let's do it. Let's vote. Let's get out there. More interested. This is more important than even my Lakers or my Dodgers. So you guys know how important this is. Um, and that's it. That's about it. Nothing more important. Uh, not many more podcasts till the end of the year. I think we have just a couple more. But um, I'll be um, weighing in with you guys on Twitter and that kind of stuff. I may pop up at a couple of things here and there. But uh, this is some real important stuff. All right. Okay. We'll be right back with my talk with Doris Kearns Goodman. Welcome to Riverside. 
I'm glad to be with yes. you guys. We're here at the, oh, Live Talks at the Fox. <laughs> they even changed it up on us. Um, and also a special uh, edition of Larry Wilmer, Black on the Air. You are officially Black on the Air now. Yay! Yay. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I want to do a proper introduction uh, for my podcast. I am, this is a treat for me, guys. I, I started loving history, I think, after I was out of school. And as an adult, I can't get enough of it. And I was talking to our guest a little earlier, just telling her about that. And it makes me so happy to have a chance to finally meet her and talk to her. So I, if we can give another special round of applause for uh, the author of Leadership in Turbulent Times, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Doris Kearns Goodwin, everybody. Thank you, Doris. So nice to have you here. Um, leadership in Turbulent Times, such an oddly picked title, it seems. Where did that come from? I did want to start with that basic question. Why this book? Why now? And why these four particular leaders? You chose Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Well, I started the book five years ago when the idea of turbulent times was a little less turbulent. <laughs> However, even then, there was a sense that something was broken in Washington, that neither of the two parties were able to get together in contrast to when I was young and that great bipartisan era of the 1960s. So, I, and also, what happened is each time I finished a new guy, I lived with these characters. So I lived mm. with Lincoln for 10 years, with Teddy and Taft for seven I lived with Franklin and Eleanor in World War II longer than it took World War II to be fought. So each time I'd finish one of them to go on to the next one, mm -hmm. I'd feel a little guilty as I moved the books out of the room and, sure. and as if I were leaving an old boyfriend behind. Mm -hmm. So I decided instead of starting on a whole new person, mm -hmm. I'd look at these four people through a different lens. And each time I also finished one of these books, even though they were very fat, I would feel like I didn't understand fully questions mm -hmm. like where did their ambition come from? Were they born or made as leaders? Um, how did they recognize themselves as leaders? All these questions when I was in graduate school we used to think about. So I decided to look at them this way. And there's always a fear for me because I lived with them for so long that the only problem will be living with these dead presidents, that in the afterlife there's going to be a panel of all the presidents I've ever studied. <laughs> and the first person to scream out will be Lyndon Johnson. How come that damn book on the Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds and the, and the Roosevelts was twice as long as the book you wrote about me. <laughs> so here I am looking at him as well as these other guys comparatively trying yeah. to look at their leadership. And it's really been fun. Yeah, and it's interesting because at such a young age you worked in a presidential administration, in the Johnson administration. Tell me about those times first. Let's jump into that first because I know you have such a personal connection to President Johnson. I was mentioning earlier, to me, it, it feels like Johnson's a little lost in the conversations of great presidents because he was kind of uh, sandwiched between uh, two great events, uh, the assassination of a very charismatic young president and Watergate, one of the most, you know, nefarious things that ever happened to a president. So tell me about that time with Johnson. Sure. I mean, what happened is when I was in graduate school at Harvard, I was selected as a White House fellow, this fabulous program. Colin Powell was a White House fellow, Wesley Clark. Mm -hmm. We had a big dance at the White House the night we were selected. Mm -hmm. President Johnson did dance with me, but it was not that peculiar because there were only three women out of the 16 did, White House wait, fellows. Did he ask you to dance? He certainly did. And wow. he twirled me Pretty. around the floor. And um, Wait, so how did... I want to just stop this for a second. <laughs> 
did he ask you to dance? Like, hey, darling, want to dance? I mean, how did he do it? You sound just like is him. That what this is scary. Like? Well, I knew he was from the South, right? <laughs> I mean, so, that must have been terrifying, right? Or, it was a little scary because yeah. he was kind of big, sort of like you. So I'm a little yeah. small dancing with this guy, and he's twirling me around. <laughs> right. But most importantly, while he's twirling me around, he said, I want you to be assigned directly to me in the White House. So it was not to be that simple, however, mm -hmm. because in the months leading up to my selection, like many young people, I'd been active in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and I'd written an article against LBJ with a friend of mine and I, which we'd sent to the New Republic sometime earlier, had we heard nothing, but two days after this big dance, it appeared in the New Republic with the title, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson oh from Power. My God. So You're I like thought, spy at, yeah. at the dance. no, actually, that's what people thought. I was sure. a traitor being stepped in there. But anyway, I thought he would kick me out of the program. But instead, absolutely surprisingly, he said, oh, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. So I did eventually end up working for him in the White House, accompanying him to his ranch to help him on his memoirs, never fully understanding why he had chosen me to spend so many hours with. I like to believe it was because I was a good listener. And he was a great storyteller, yeah. fabulous, colorful stories. There was a problem with these stories. I later discovered that half of them weren't true, but they were great nonetheless. So I figured that... politician. No, yeah, he is a politician. But they were fun stories. But sure. in the meantime, um, I also worried that part of it was, why was he spending so many hours with me that I was a young woman? At what and, point in, the president, in his presidency was this? So it was the last year and a half of his presidency, oh, okay. and so, then the, yeah. the next few years working on the memoir. So he was sad much yeah. of that time. And um, we talked a lot about how the war had cut his legacy in two. Mm -hmm. He had such a domestic legacy, which we can talk about. But I also worried that part of the reason he was talking to me so much was because I was a young woman and he had somewhat of a minor league womanizing reputation. Mm -hmm. um, so I constantly talked to him about steady boyfriends, even when I had no boyfriends at all. And everything was perfectly fine. I love that you're me tooing him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you'll see. So then everything's fine until one day he decides he wants to discuss our relationship, which sounded ominous when he took me nearby to the lake, conveniently called Lake Lyndon Johnson, with wine and cheese, a red check tablecloth. He takes you to a lake of his own name? Of his own very name. Wow. Lake, everything was LBJ that's, around That's him. what I call a power move. That was a power move. <laughs> but then it gets worse. So then he says, Doris, more than any other woman I've ever known, and my heart sank. I thought, oh, God. And then he said, you remind me of my mother. It was... <laughs> so that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and then you thought, I've got to find more. I got to find out more about all of these presidents. <laughs> what makes them tick? Uh, is Johnson the most surprising of all the presidents since you had a certain experience with him, and then to go back and really learn more about him? Yeah, I think it's true. You know, at the time when I met with him and I knew him, the war in Vietnam was such a cloud over mm -hmm. his entire presidency. But now, looking back 50 years later, what he did in civil rights is extraordinary. It's the one thing he was hoping, even in those days when I would walk with him near his ranch, mm -hmm. and he would be so sad knowing that people were forgetting everything he did. He said, if ever I'm to be remembered, hopefully it will be for civil rights. I mean, when he came in after Kennedy's assassination, the civil rights bill was stuck in the Congress. They thought there was no chance it would get out. It would yeah. face a filibuster in the Senate. They said, you can't make this your priority. He said, I want to make it my one priority. And they said to him, you'll be a failed president. Nothing will get through the Congress. You'll run for office 11 months from now on your own with nothing to succeed behind you. 
And he said, you've only got a certain amount of coinage as a president to expand. You should not expend it on this. And then he said, what the hell is the presidency for? And he went for it. He was able to bring 22 Republicans along with the Northern Democrats, because the Democrats were split in two. The Southern were going to bring the filibuster. He gets Everett Dirksen, who's the minority leader, on his side. God, I wish we had this kind of bipartisanship today. And yeah. it, it was an amazing thing, right? Yeah. And he goes, he goes to Dirksen, and, and he offers him everything under the sun, and he can have anything he wants in Illinois. But then he understands that Dirksen also wants to be remembered for having done something extraordinary. So he says, Everett, you come with me on this bill, and 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. And wow. he came with him, and 22 Republicans came with him, and not only on civil rights, but on voting rights, on Medicare, on aid to education, NPR, PBS, Immigration reform, we, there was a time when the, they used to stay in Washington together mm -hmm. and they weren't racing home to race, raise money, which is the poison in the system. There was a time when they played poker together, they drank together, they knew each other as human beings, and so they could cross party lines and think about what's best for the institution of the Senate, what's best for our country. So that's, that's, the, sh that's the, the shining part of Lyndon Johnson, and it wasn't mm -hmm. just him, it was the country at large then, that I, I think all of us have such heartbreak about where the partisanship is in our country right now, to go back and remember that as I wrote this, which I hadn't in my mind when I wrote the first book on him, it's, I, I'm just out of there. So yeah. I think this is natural that these guys get together. Well, it isn't natural now, and, and we have to remember it. I think that's what history does, it makes you remember a time when things were different, and we can have that again. What, do you think we can have it again? What is, I feel like one of the major things that has changed are the parties themselves. Um, when you mention the Democratic Party, you're absolutely right. The Democratic Party was split, you know, with Southern Democrats, Northern Democrats, conservative and liberal. Republican Party had liberal factions and conservative factions too. Now it seems like all of the Democratic Party is left, all of the Republican Party is right. And there are no people within the party who seem to cross over. And the people that do, oh my God. I mean, they get like killed like no one else, it seems. Yeah, I mean, what's happened in part, in the, certainly in the House, is the way the congressional lines are drawn so that they're drawn. With gerrymandering. gerrymandering. But yeah. you can stop that. You know, there are moves now in states to have nonpartisan drawing of congressional lines, and that's mm -hmm. beginning to mobilize a little bit. We can do something about campaign finance, which makes you go on one side or the other because that most intense group is going to support you. We just have to believe, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt said, problems are created by man, they can be solved by man. So part of what I hope, you know, in people reading about these times, we think we're in the worst of times right now. So many people come up to me as, as a historian and they think, you must know things. Are these the worst of times? I don't know anything about the future, but I can look to the past. Mm -hmm. And just imagine what it was like when Abraham Lincoln took office. And he said if he had ever known what those first months were like, he wouldn't have thought he could have lived through it. Sure. The country split into a civil war is about to begin with more than 600,000 dead. Imagine what it was like for Franklin Roosevelt, the whole house of cards he thought would collapse before he even became inaugurated. We're at the lowest ebb of the Great Depression. There's a sense that capitalism is at risk as a result of that, that it may not last. So I think we just have to remember that we got through those times because we had not only a good leader that was there to deal with the problem of the time, but the citizens were active. When Lincoln was called the great liberator, he said, it wasn't me, it was the anti-slavery movement mm -hmm. that did it. It was the progressive movement that helped for FDR and Teddy Roosevelt and the civil rights movement for Johnson. 
So it just means an awakening on the citizens right now to take their responsibilities and figure out how to deal with, I don't know the answers yet, but there's gotta be answers to this hyper-partisanship, to the social media that divides us, to the fact that people in this country think of themselves as the other. That's the really scary thing that's happening. So yeah. not just the politics, but Teddy Roosevelt said, the rock of democracy would founder when people of different races and sections and classes start thinking of themselves as the other rather than as common citizens in an American country. I just want to know, where is this rock? You know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know we'll have, if we find it, I would maybe love we to can find preserve this rock. it. Yes. Uh, Lincoln, um, Lincoln could never have survived today if there was Twitter. You know, a president oh, like that. Oh, I don't know. Let me tell you about uh -huh. Lincoln. And oh, Twitter. yes, please. No, yeah. I mean, Lincoln had an incredibly quick mind. Uh -huh. um, I don't know that he would have used it because he, he felt it was very important to prepare everything you said because he knew that words mattered. But when he was in the debates with Stephen Douglas, they... People in the audience, if you were, in, if we were Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln right mm. now, I suppose I'd be Stephen Douglas because he was like five foot four and you could be Lincoln. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, the audience would be part of the whole thing. They would come for six hours. Yeah, it was debate, extraordinary how long And they would yell said, yeah. from the audience, hit him again, hit him again, harder. But mm -hmm. like at some point, somebody yelled out at Lincoln, you're two-faced. And he said, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? He could do it absolutely. He had They're such like, a Burn! sense of humor. <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. Right. Um, but when he became president, he hardly ever spoke extemporaneously because he said, if he said something that, that, that failed to help with the divisions in the country, he would feel terrible. So he would wait until he could prepare, and he surely had yeah. a gift for language to prepare those speeches. But he could do it. It's I think a, Teddy Roosevelt could do it too. He had all these sayings. He would be. Yeah. You had a quick mind. You can do it, but you have to. Decide, you have to have thought behind it. It seems like the most successful presidents do seem to have that agile mind. You know, the ability to not only think of their feet, but it, they seem to be considering their legacy at the same time. It seems like you know. Yeah, that's a really good point because mm -hmm. what I saw in each one of my guys, and I, I don't mean to be disrespectful calling them guys, I just live with them for so long that I feel like I know them. Mm -hmm. At some point in their lives, their ambition for themselves became something larger, an ambition for the greater good of the country. Yeah. And, you know, it, it happened in different moments for them. I mean, Lincoln somehow was born with that desire to do something that he would be remembered by. Mm -hmm. When he runs the first time at age 23, he gives this statement you had to give, you had to write a statement as to why you wanted to run. He's running for the state legislature. He's hardly known in the town where he's running from. It showed how ambition was deep within him. And he says, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to make myself worthy of that esteem. He's thinking of that larger goal even then. Yeah. And then and he of says- Of course he chooses lawyer and politician. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. so. Which one will it be? Right. Maybe both. <laughs> and then he says, um, I, I'm so familiar with disappointment that if you don't elect me, I, I won't be too chagrined. But then he says, but I promise you, if I fail once, I'm not gonna stop. In fact, I think I'll try twice, three, four, five, six times until it's too humiliating, and I promise you I'll never try again. Which means he had resilience even from the time he was young. Do you, do you think Lincoln is the most unlikely of presidents, of people to become president? Well, you know what I think? The people who knew him, the people who knew him on his rise to power, knew they were in the presence of somebody special. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had extraordinary humility, which many could acknowledge errors. He had empathy. You know, he had that resilience. He had that extraordinary gift for language. Yeah. 
He had all the qualities, but the nation didn't know him right. until those Stephen Douglas debates. And then Douglas was going to be the Democratic candidate. And he had bested or at least equaled Stephen Douglas. And then once he got into the presidency, even then, people thought he was unlikely. He puts his three rivals into the presidency. Mm -hmm. Each one of them thought they should have been president instead of him. We'll control him. Amazing. And they saw within weeks that he was that he was the leader of them. He's I, he's an extraordinary man. God, I'd love to I'd love to have known him. Yeah, well, your your book Team of Rivals is fantastic. Thank you know, you. and I know uh, Steven Spielberg used a lot of that material for his movie, which I thought. What was extraordinary about that movie, and knowing you know the genesis of it, it was a movie about procedure. I mean, who does a movie about procedure from the 19th century, for Christ's sake? But that's how amazing a figure Abraham Lincoln was, you know. That, and of course, that procedure was about the Civil War and slavery. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, I think mm -hmm. what happened in the movie is they they used a smaller plot to get the 13th yes. Amendment passed, right. and to show that politics and bargaining and all sorts of things was yeah. necessary at a time when we thought compromise was bad. But most importantly, Daniel Day-Lewis was just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, when he first finally agreed to be Lincoln, Spielberg had hoped he would be Lincoln for months and years, actually, showing him various scripts, and he said no. When he finally <laughs> said yes to Tony Kushner's script, Stephen asked me if I would take him to Springfield mm -hmm. to show him the scenes. But he was, I mean, all the, the birth happened where, his, where he and Mary lived, the state house, his office. But he didn't want anybody to know that he was already becoming Lincoln because he wanted a whole year to become Lincoln. He inhabits the character. So he was coming, we were supposed to eat under an assumed name. But at the last minute he said, oh no, let's go to a bar. So he went to a bar in Springfield. Immediately somebody bought us drinks and I thought, oh my God, it's already over. But they didn't recognize him, they recognized mm -hmm. me. It was a huge joke between us. <laughs> So anyway, finally... Of course, why would they not? Of no, course. in Springfield, right. maybe, but he just becomes the character he is, so yeah. he doesn't look like the person. That's so amazing. finally, when the premiere happened, um, we were back in New York, and he said, okay, I'm taking you to my favorite bar, and we'll remember that night in Springfield. So we had these old Cuban drinks, and you know, I had two, he had maybe more than me, everything was fine. <laughs> and then he got the first of his series of awards, and Spielberg came to deliver it to him, and he told how he had rejected these roles, he wrote these beautiful rejection letters, until finally he said yes. So Daniel got up there, and unaccountably, because there's a Wall Street Journal reporter in the room, he said, I don't reject everything, when Doris Kearns Goodwin asked me to go binge drinking with her, I accepted it once. <laughs> so I was proud. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I always wanted to know, was um, I, the things that I've read on Lincoln, it almost seemed like, I, like, I don't know how popular he was as president. Of course, it was during the Civil War and all of those things. But it seemed like he was wildly popular once he was assassinated. I know it sounds like an odd thing. But it almost seemed like a bottled up feeling for him was was able to be released because no, of that assassination. I, I Does think that make sense? there's something right about that. I mean, yeah. what, what, what happened was, of course, he's assassinated when the war has already come to an yeah. end. So the <clears throat> Union had won, slavery had been undone by the Emancipation Proclamation, and, um, and, and the war had been won. So he was already having an extraordinary triumph, and he was already trying to reconcile the South and the North together in that second inaugural when he talks mm -hmm. about the sin of slavery was shared by both sides, both read the same Bible, both prayed to the same gods, neither's prayers were fully answered, and then of course the words remember with malice toward none and charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wounds. So people realized by then, between the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural, that he had given a meaning to the war with this beautiful language, 
and that the war had been won and that he was the major figure along with the Union Army and giving direction to the cabinet and the Union Army. But then when he died, in the, when you really were hoping he would keep going yeah. and keep that chance of reconciling North and South together, I think you're right. It released these feelings that had been growing as yeah. time went by that we were in the presence of somebody really special. And it's funny because Booth had imagined he would become a hero. You know, and had imagined that his acts would be seen as heroic and people would cheer him. And it was the opposite. He was reviled. I mean, yeah. he, he lives in infamy. Yeah. And, and Lincoln lives. I think there's, you know, I think it's partly just the person he was. He used to talk about the fact that if he allowed feelings like um, envy or anger or jealousy to bubble up within him, mm -hmm. they poison you. So I often felt when I was in his presence, um, if I could just be more like him, you know, I could just say, yeah. Lincoln would say, forget it. But the other thing was that I knew when I started that he, I would really feel great respect for him and that he was a good politician. I learned that even more. I had no idea how funny he would be. Yeah. I mean, you, would, you would love him. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. No, seriously, yeah. there's, a, you know, there's a moment, one of the, one of the stories that he told that, that I heard that he told. I didn't listen to him tell it. I sometimes imagine that I did. But I convinced Daniel Day and Stephen to put it in the, in the movie. It had to do, and Lincoln loved this story, with the Revolutionary War hero, Ethan Allen, who mm -hmm. went to England after the war to a dinner party, and they decided to embarrass him by putting a huge picture of General George Washington in the only outhouse where he'd have to encounter it sooner or later. They figured he'd be very indignant at the idea that George Washington was hanging in an outhouse. But he came out of the outhouse not upset at all, and they said, well, didn't you see George Washington there? Oh, yes, he said, I think it was the perfectly appropriate place for him. What do you mean, they said? Well, he said, there's nothing to make an Englishman shit faster than the sight of General George Washington. <laughs> and he had hundreds of these stories. He That's used to great. tell them at tough, troubled meetings in the cabinet, and humor, he said, could whistle off sadness better yeah. than a drop of whiskey. And again, I mean, it's one of the things we don't, we're not doing very much these days is, is being able to look at ourselves and, and feel, you know, feel yeah. a sense of self-deprecating humor of what's going I on. I couldn't agree more. You know, I wish our current president was more self-deprecating. I think, no, I do. No, you know, I, I, I seems, know what you mean. No, I, I, really, I really do. do. Even presidents that I don't care for, like Reagan I didn't vote for, but he was hilarious. You know, he was, Reagan was really, really funny, you know. Uh, George Bush was funny in spite of himself, <laughs> you know, but he's still funny. But Trump never laughs. I don't think I've ever seen him actually no. laugh. Like no. it's something someone says. Someone says something, I've never seen him go, oh, oh, that's good. He's never done that. No, it, it, it shows. I mean, I think one of the things Teddy Roosevelt was able to do was to laugh at himself. There's a moment when a famous journalist wrote a critical review of the memoir that he wrote about the Spanish-American War, mm -hmm. and he said that Teddy had so made himself the center of every action of that battle of the wars that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. And everybody's <laughs> laughing in the country. Yeah. And what does he do? He writes a letter to the journalist. He said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me one. I want you to make my acquaintance next time you're in Washington, come to visit me. Now, that's the way you get out of these things. Yeah. You can just laugh at yourself at some point, and then people feel the vulnerability, but somehow we haven't got yeah. that right now. Teddy Roosevelt's an interesting figure because as a boy, I think he kind of looked out the window at the Lincoln parade of these, you right. know, his funeral parade. And um, comes from a wealthy family, had asthma, as you write, you know, growing up, and 
you know, he was, it seemed like he had an awkward beginning and was spent a lot of his life trying to find himself. And it almost seemed to me like the presidency was almost Teddy's way of kind of finding where he belonged. You know, you know I think what happens to Teddy is that you're right, because he had asthma as a child, he was almost an invalid for a while. Yeah. And he just read everything he could lay his hands on. He said so he read like 400 books yeah, once no, or something. Yeah, there was one summer he yeah. actually reads 50 novels Yeah, that or something summer. like that. And when he decides to go into politics, um, he admitted later it wasn't because he was trying to help other people. He'd come from this very privileged background. Mm -hmm. He said it was just an adventure. Why not try politics? He's 23 years old. But once he got in, it got him into, as he said, into places that he, of his background, wouldn't normally go, into the slums, into places mm -hmm. where there's child labor, into, you know, he's police commissioner, he's walking the streets at night, and he said, gradually a fellow feeling develops. You may feel conscious at first, and then you begin to see these other ways of life, and you want to do something about it. So he grew in office. When he was first in the state legislature, he had a swelled head, he later admitted. He used to scream <laughs> and yell and blistering, he'd make great headlines, and then he could get nothing done. And he always had sort of like, I think, our current president desire to be in the center of attention. And he was. He was so colorful. People loved him. He'd walk in a room and he would grab everybody's energy. Um, there's a saying about him that he was so liking to be the center of attention that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism, the bride at the wedding, and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> but once he got into power, um, he really wanted to heal some of the divisions in the country. Mm -hmm. And his whole mantra during the presidency was a square deal for the rich right. and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. Not that you had to win the deal, but you wanted both sides to somehow feel that they had learned, they'd gotten something from the deal. Wasn't Roosevelt shot while he was giving a speech? It's yeah. incredible. I mean, he, because he was this little kid who had asthma, he used to always have courageous heroes in mind, people that would go hunting or people with pathfinders or, right. or soldiers. So, yes, in 1912, when he was running against Taft, um, he was in, in a car, standing up, about ready to go to the speech, and he gets shot right in his chest. And he insists that he goes to the speech anyway. He <laughs> finished and the speech. Right? And then he gets up on the stage. And he, what had happened is, luckily for him, but they didn't know it fully at the time, he'd had his speech folded up. And those speeches then were like 50 pages long. They used to talk for a long time. Right. And he had a spectacle case in his, in his pocket. So the bullet had to go, was deflected from there. Right. Otherwise, he would have been killed. But he gets on the stage. He's feeling a little woozy at times. But he keeps going until it's, and then he says, now I'll go to the hospital. They finally go to the hospital. They can't even remove the, the bullet. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And he's there for a week. And he has to suspend his campaign, essentially. And he does not win that campaign against Wilson. But that was him. You know, courage was something that really mattered to him. Yeah. And uh, it's when Lincoln's assassinated. And, of course, Roosevelt becomes president because of assassination, which later happens to Johnson which is kind of interesting. But both uh, Roosevelt and Lincoln, it seemed like they were a certain type of person, but their legacy is in doing something almost the opposite of who they were. You know, with Roosevelt, here's a guy who's, you know, from money, and he's concerned about the common man. You know, you know, uh, the whole coal strike, you know, as you said, was one of the defining things of his legacy. Right? Yeah, I mean, somehow, I think the reason that Roosevelt was able to communicate with ordinary people or common people... I don't even like those phrases, with people, with mm -hmm. people, is that he ended up going out west for two years. Yeah. He was, when he was in the state legislature, and he's only like 25 years old, he's gotten married, his wife is giving a bit, having a baby, his mother has come to take care of his wife, 
and he gets a telegram saying, you've had a baby girl, and they all celebrate with cigars, and then sometime later another telegram comes, says your wife is dying and your mother's dying too, you must come home. And what had happened is his mother had gotten typhoid fever, she was only 49 years old, and then he got home in time for her to die, and then 12 hours later his wife died in childbirth. And the depression that followed that, in fact, all of my guys went through adversity and came out stronger at the other end. Mm -hmm. Ernest Hemingway said, you can be broken in life, everyone's broken, but afterwards some people are stronger in the broken places. So after he, he left the state legislature in a state of depression, and he went to the Badlands, and he became a cowboy and a rancher, and he said when he rode his horse 15 hours a day, he could outrun black care or depression. But he became a figure of the West as a result. Otherwise, mm -hmm. he was this elite figure from the East. And the people in the West loved him as much as the people in the East did. And he said he never would have become president if it hadn't been for that. And he also developed this huge love of nature, which gives his conservation legacy, the thing for which he's most remembered, its beginning. So chance plays a role in all these people's life, yeah. and fate hurts them. And it depends on how you respond to those moments. Yeah, he was a very enigmatic figure. Um, he definitely could have existed today. I mean, you know, part of me wonders if Roosevelt, this is something I was asking you earlier, where I feel like the way to define a great president sometimes is, are the extraordinary times by which they're up against or to, or what they have to fight against or whatever. And I was arguing that I don't know if Roosevelt had that. What do you think makes him a great president? Well, I think he gets into the ranks of the presidential historians as one of the near greats. You know, I mean, it's always Lincoln, mm -hmm. Washington, FDR is now in that group. Um, and he's now a near great. And I think it's in part because he recognized the hidden dangers of the era that he was called upon to lead in. The Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy, much like the tech revolution and globalization have done today. And I think there's an echo in that turn of the century and today in terms of what President Trump was able to mobilize during his campaign. Populist movement. A populist movement mm -hmm. developed at the turn of the 20th century. There was the first time there was a gap between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. Immigrants were coming in from abroad. There were all these new inventions that scared people. They thought life was changing right. yeah. too fast. The automobile and telephone and the telegraph. And in that anxiety, populist mood developed. But eventually Roosevelt came along and was able to channel that into rational reform. Mm -hmm. You know, breaking up some of the big companies, regulating some of the railroads, dealing with the corruption that had developed in the system, and that square deal. So he deserves credit for having taken something that was there and made it a national issue. And he was very friendly with the press, and they were investigating all these things, and the partners they became. And so he's remembered now for having made the most of a time, even though you're right, usually it's a big crisis that allows somebody to mm -hmm. be remembered by history because they had a huge challenge. But even if you have a huge challenge, you could fail. I mean, right. Hoover was there before FDR, and he wasn't able to be experimental enough and, and, you know, and, and being able to change his ideology to deal with the Depression. Buchanan, who's considered, or was considered the worst leader in the presidential history, um, was there, and he made the divisions worse in the 1850s. Indeed, on these presidential polls, um, he's always been at the bottom, and the last one, however, and it's not fair to rest to do Mr. Trump now, but he was at the bottom of the presidential historian's poll. The only fun part of it was that the Buchanan family was celebrating. We're not on the bottom anymore. <laughs> Although Trump would argue it's the largest bottom ever. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Hoover not being able to, to change, and you mentioned in your book, I thought it was really interesting how you talk about uh, FDR's illness 
and how he was forced to change and adapt his life. You mentioned uh, where he talked about how can a man, where he didn't complain a lot, you know, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it, you know. Uh, he, uh, he mentioned how can a man without legs, if he wants like uh, some coffee, let's say someone brings him orange juice or milk, how is he going to complain, you know? Exactly It's, it's right. better and to just smile and just drink it. Yeah. And little things just didn't get to him in the same yeah. way they would have. I mean, here he was, a young, in his 30s still, loved athletic sports, loved walking in the woods, loved riding horses, and he gets struck with polio and mm. is paralyzed from the waist down. How old was he when he, he was, was struck? He was in his late 30s. Wow, his and late... Wait, he was in his late 30s? Yeah. That's it. I didn't know he was that old when he was struck with poetry. No, no, he's, well, he's not, he seems pretty young to me from my age right now. He seems very young right, in his right. 30s. And he, um, and what, and years of striving lay ahead of him. I mean, at first he couldn't even, he couldn't even get into his wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And then finally he gets into his wheelchair and then he asked to be put on the floor, taken off the wheelchair so he could crawl around the library floor for hours and hours and hours to strengthen his back and his arms. And then when he goes to Warm Springs, the rehabilitation center that he sets up, mm -hmm. this is where I think his true leadership developed. He made himself vulnerable. He let all of the fellow polio patients see that he couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. They would be in the pool together, not just exercising. He knew he had to make them feel they could have joy and pleasure in their life again. So he went to, they would play water polo, they'd play tag, they would have mm -hmm. wheelchair dances, they'd have cocktail parties, and they ch he changed their lives. And so when he comes into office, he's much more warm-hearted. He was aware of other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. Yeah. He was much more empathetic than he had been. He was the right person to deal with a paralyzed country that needed to have confidence and optimism to remind them that things would somehow get better again. It was, he was the perfect man for that time. Yeah, it's interesting. And Roosevelt seemed to me, I, I won't say, it didn't, I'm, I'm not saying he gave up, but it did seem like he was while he was in Warm Springs, like th there was nothing else to live for in the political realm until Al Smith contacts him, wants him to run for governor. And something about having to show up many times brings the man forward, brings that person forward, don't you think? Yeah, no, you're yeah. absolutely right. Al Smith was running for the presidency and he wanted to have Roosevelt nominate him at the convention. And Roosevelt had never had to really walk anywhere and he knew he yeah. couldn't go in the wheelchair so he had to practice having braces on, holding onto a strong arm, to being helped up to the podium. And he practiced over and over again. He knew exactly what the length that he'd have to walk. Mm -hmm. But still, he was getting up in front of this huge audience. If he'd fallen, which he could well have, he knew that it would be the end of any chances because they would think you can't possibly be president. Right. But he made it to that podium. And then he smiled that smile. And then he gives this happier warrior speech. And it just, you know, it, it's one of the things, again, about the past and the present that's sad in the sense that um, there was a moment in 1936 when he's president, and he is walking, seeming to walk. He couldn't walk on his own power with those braces, holding on, and leans over to shake somebody's hand, and he falls. And his speech sprawls out on the floor, and he has to say to them, get me together again. They have to, un they have to lock his braces. He comes up, he delivers the rendezvous with destiny speech. Never is there a mention in the newspaper that he had fallen. Never is there a picture of him on the ground. Younger photographers, if they tried to take a picture of him in his wheelchair or with his braces on, would be told by the older photographers they'd knock the camera out of mm. their hands. There was a dignity then to the office that they were willing to protect. And now I remember we had to see Gen Gerald Ford fall down the plane steps a thousand <laughs> yes. times and, and yes. President Bush sick in Japan. 
It's as if they're trying to expose them in, in embarrassing situations. Mm. And it, probably you wish that he had been able to make it known that he had polio and he couldn't walk and that he still would have been president. But he thought at that time the country wasn't ready for that. Hopefully yeah. it would be ready now. Yeah. Roosevelt is an interesting figure also. And we mentioned Al Smith. Al Smith to me is kind of that link between Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. Because it seems like Teddy Roosevelt, the the kind of progressive policies in his administration in the Republican Party were kind of copied by Tammany Hall, <laughs> picked up by the Democratic Party. The governor, Franklin Roosevelt, kind of has that as his model of reform, and then that becomes the new Democratic Party in the 30s. It's almost like through the Roosevelts, the Republicans turn into the Democrats in some no, ways. I mean, there's something to that. Yeah. I, mean, I think, you know, what's interesting to me, there's a family tree sort of in this book, which is that Lyndon Johnson's great hero is FDR. And in fact, they met when, when he was a young um, congressman, and, and FDR saw something in that fucking Bronco that was LBJ that said if he hadn't gone to Harvard, he, FDR, this is the kind of politician he might have been. And he predicted that if ever there's a first Southern president, this guy might be it. Mm -hmm. And then FDR's hero was Teddy Roosevelt, and Teddy Roosevelt's yeah. hero was Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln's was the founding father. So that's the history of our country yeah. contained in these four guys in a certain sense. The other thing about Franklin Roosevelt is he's the first what I'll call intimate president, um, and I think it's because of the fireside chats. Like, Absolutely. There's something uh, about radio that creates intimacy with the broadcaster and the audience that television doesn't. Television is very harsh, which unfortunately kind of hurt Johnson, I think, Absolutely. in the day. That kind of relationship, do you think part of that created that bond that Americans needed during that time. It was such an accident of history, right? Without question. He was just lucky to be coming into the presidency when the radio was coming into yeah. national. And he had the, not just the voice, but the intimate kind of voice to carry on a conversation with the people. The first fireside chat he gives is right after he's taken over the office and the banks are all failing. He's closed the banks for a week and he's promising people and in this fireside chat, that he's made an emergency banking legislation and it, it'll be safe now because there's currency to back us up if you bring your money back to the banks. Everybody was afraid when they opened the banks after that week. Would they bring their money back or would they try to take it away? Long lines form, they get scared. Everybody was carrying in satchels because Roosevelt had told them it was safe. And he was able to establish this, I think, by a conversational style of speaking. Mm -hmm. Saul Bellow said you could walk down the street on a hot Chicago night. He gave 30 of these fireside chats. If one of them was on, you could look in the window and see everybody looking at their radio. Right. And you could hear his voice coming out the window. You could keep walking and not miss a word of what he said. And then there's a story of a construction worker coming home one night. And his partner said, where are you going? He said, well, my president, he's coming to speak to me in my living room. It's only right I'd be there to greet him when he comes. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing is when he died, what mm -hmm. people said, strangers would be hugging themselves and saying, we lost our friend. Yeah. And there was somebody wrote in there, it's amazing that one man dies and 130 million people feel lonely. So you're absolutely right. Intimacy is... But there was also the joy of life. He mm. loved being president. Yeah. And he emitted that sense of excitement and passion. And he had a good time. He had a good time. He, he knew how to, one of the things that all my guys except, except for, um, LBJ were able to do was to somehow relax and replenish mm -hmm. their energies. These jobs are so pressuring. They knew they had to find ways to channel their thoughts into other directions. So Lincoln actually went to the theater a hundred times during the war. He said, people think my theater going strange. 
but if I couldn't get rid of this anxiety by imagining myself back in the War of the Roses, I couldn't get through it. And Teddy Roosevelt actually exercised two hours after every, we think we can't take time off because we're so busy. These guys were a little busier than us. He was able to take two hours every afternoon to exercise. And his favorite exercise was to take a hike in the Wooded Creek Cliffs of Rock Creek Park. And there's a great story connected to it. So he would make people walk with him, hike, and he couldn't go around any obstacle. So if you came to a rock, you had to climb it. You came to a precipice, you had to go down it. But the best story was told by the French ambassador. Everybody's falling by the wayside, and he's so excited. He has no idea what the walk is going to be like. He's in his silk outfit, mm -hmm. and he starts finding himself in the woods. He's climbing over rocks. He can't wait till it's over. They finally come to a stream, and he thinks, thank God it's over. Judge of my horror, he said, when I saw the president unbutton his clothes and heard him say, it's an obstacle. We can't go around it, so we, not, we shouldn't get our clothes wet. So I, too, for the honor of France, removed my apparel. However, I left on my lavender kid gloves. To be without gloves would be most embarrassing if we should meet ladies on the other side. So, but FDR is the best. What FDR does I, I love is that story. every night during World War II, he had a cocktail hour. Mm. And the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about gossip, books you'd read, movies, right. as long as the war didn't come up. You hear about Clark Gable and yeah. Carol Lombard? Exactly. No, absolutely. He <laughs> loved movie stuff. Yeah. And so he could relax. He just needed it, too. And so after a while, this cocktail hour was so important to him that he wanted the people who would be coming to the cocktail hour to live on the second floor of the White House to be ready for the cocktail hour. Right. So it became the most exclusive hotel you could possibly imagine. His foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, came for dinner one night. Slept over, never left till the war came to an end. <laughs> Eleanor's friend, hmm. Lorena Hickok, lived in a bedroom next to her. Princess Martha, in exile in America during the war, lived up there with the family. His secretary, Missy Lehan, did. So I kept imagining when I was writing the book, on no ordinary time, what incredible conversations they must have had in their bathrobes at night. <laughs> and wishing that when I'd been up there with LBJ when I was 24, I thought of asking, where was Roosevelt? Where was Eleanor? And most importantly, where was Churchill? Because he came and spent weeks at a time in a bedroom diagonally across from Roosevelt's. So I happened to mention this on a, a radio program in Washington. It happened. Hillary Clinton then in the White House was listening. So she called me up at the radio station, invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. She said that we could then wander the corridor, figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. So two weeks later, she followed up with an invitation to a state dinner. After which, between midnight and 2 a.m., the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband and I, with my map in hand, went through every room and figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was, the Clintons are sleeping where FDR was, and we were sleeping that night in Winston Churchill's bedroom. No way I could sleep. I was certain he was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy and smoking his Prepper President cigar. I loved it. What an amazing life you have. Oh, my God. That is, that is fantastic. Um, um, who do you think, which president do you think changed the country most by the virtue of their presidency? And do you also have a presidency who you feel was changed the most by their presidency? Oh, that's a wonderful set of questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose when you think that the original sin of the country was slavery, mm. that until slavery could be taken away from us, um, the country was never going to be whole again. Right. And that... And, the, the, you know, some people keep saying, did we have to fight a civil war? Was it possible to compromise before that? It wasn't. I mean, as far as when I studied all this, you could see that the worry was that slavery might eventually die out in the South. Mm -hmm. But what the Southerners were arguing for 
was that slavery should be allowed to go into the new Western territories, that slaves could have worked in the mines, they could have worked in all those new areas. Mm -hmm. And if that hadn't been taken away from us, the country would be forever a different place. On the other hand, I suppose, when you think about the relationship between um, the economy and the government, under FDR, it changed systematically. Things became part of a social um, blanket underneath the, the people who were not getting jobs, who needed social security, who needed help from the government, and, and that trend has continued ever since then. So, yeah. so I, I don't know. In each, and who was changed the most by it? I would guess, you know, you see pictures of Abraham Lincoln looking a hundred years at the end, but when I listen to what he was saying in those last days of his life, I think he was actually happier and feeling younger than he had the whole time because the weight of the war was over and he was looking forward to being president and trying to heal the He was probably optimistic uh, he was before optimistic he died. Yeah. He knew it would be hard to mm-hmm. bring the South back into the Union and keep the freed blacks to have their, their own rights, but he was ready for that challenge. Um, Teddy Roosevelt just didn't really want to leave, which is why he ran again in 1912. Mm-hmm. And Franklin Roosevelt was very ill that last year of his presidency but he wanted to just stay there at least until the war could be won mm. and he could set the peace in motion through the United Nations. Um, probably LBJ was the saddest one. Um, yeah. Both Teddy and LBJ had to live beyond their presidencies, which was very hard anyway. But LBJ in those last months and years, when he, when he would talk, I mean, I think if he could ever be alive today, at least to see that historians are pushing him up in the ranks right now, realizing that so much of the foundation of what we're living with today was in his domestic programs, but he knew he knew that the war in Vietnam, as I said, had cut that legacy in two. So those last months on the ranch were really hard for him. Um, and when we talked, I could feel that sadness in him. And I'm glad at least that his children are alive now to see that you know, there's been a renaissance for him, partly because of those tapes, those crazy tapes, if you haven't listened to them. Hmm. That's when he would persuade a congressman to do something. He had a a little um, telephone thing, a button on his telephone, so he could press a button and he could record that conversation. They were transcribed, right? So then at a certain point, um, they could use them for the memoirs. And he was fabulous in these. I mean, it wasn't just force, he was also charm. But much later, I, so we used them when I was working on the memoirs. Much later, I read the C, I met the CEO of Pepsi-Cola, and he told me, now I know you knew Lyndon Johnson as a young girl, but I have a Lyndon Johnson story I bet you don't know. And he told <laughs> me when Nixon came in, he asked his friend, Don Kendall, the CEO guy, to go to see Johnson about some sensitive matter. And he said, Johnson's working on his memoirs. He looks up Grumple, and he says, how am I supposed to remember what happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago? The only chapters are any good at all where I had this taping system. And I could now have verbatim conversations. So you go back and tell your good friend Nixon as he starts the presidency, nothing more important than a taping. That is a beautiful circle there. Uh, uh, I always felt that uh, Johnson also may have been hurt by maybe unrealistic expectations following uh, Kennedy's assassination. Um, And I always wondered... Um, what was Johnson's motivation? Did you ever get a sense of that? Like, why was he so passionate about civil rights? Because it didn't seem anything leading up to that could have pointed to that, that, that issue. I mean, I understand he was a great legislator. I understand that he wanted to get things done. But I don't understand that particular issue with this Southern Democrat. Yeah, it's very interesting that when, when he was young, he had to take a year off from college. 
And up until that point, he had been really just seeking power, even in his college. You know, he wanted to get close to the president so that he could have power of the president. So he, he took a job in the janitorial crew, mopping floors outside the president's office. And the next thing you know, he's the clerk in the president's office. The next thing you know, he's the assistant to the president. So he's gathering power, but without a lot of purpose. Mm -hmm. And then he took a year off, and he went to this place called Catula in Texas, where there were poor Mexican-Americans who were, who were exhibiting prejudice against them. And he becomes their teacher, their principal, the band leader. He did everything in the school. He used his money to buy sporting equipment. And it gave him a sense of fulfillment, of knowing that he had done something for other people that he never forgot, mm -hmm. even as he went back to college and then just assumed power for a long period of time and finally becomes the majority leader of the Senate, the most powerful majority leader, with no real legislative vision at that time, mm. just getting whatever needed to done. Then he has a massive heart attack in 1955 and goes into a depression and comes out of it and saying, what if I die now? What would I be remembered for? And that, I think what was, you know, sort of instilled in him from that Catula experience and, and the civil rights movement was heating up at that time, so it was a major issue. So he gets the first civil rights bill through the Senate, even though it's a moderate bill. And then when he gets into the presidency, he gets that one. And then he gets the civil rights bill that ends segregation in the South, followed by voting rights. And the amazing thing with the voting rights bill is this is Selma demonstrations have taken place. And he then goes to a joint session of Congress. Mm. And he talks. It's the most yeah. extraordinary speech. I know exactly and I, what you're going to so say. I'm so proud of the fact that yeah. my husband, who worked for Lyndon Johnson, worked on that speech. And he died this last spring, and even at his memorial service, we played We Shall Overcome. Because yeah. in that speech, what Johnson says is, every now and then, history and fate meet at a certain time in a certain place. So it was in Lexington and Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was in Selma, Alabama. This is not a Negro problem. It's not a white problem. It's not a North problem. It's not a South problem. It's an American problem. And it'll take us a long time to deal with this, but we shall overcome. He takes up the anthem of the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. It's really extraordinary. Um, I think I told my kids about that because, um, I mean, as a young kid, I was kind of too young to have that really mean something. But as I got older, going back and listening to it, and the way in which, I mean, he he pauses, oh. you know, he gives it, it its own kind of platform there. And he makes it clear to all Americans exactly what he's saying. He looks right in the camera and says, and we shall oh. overcome. It's you know? an amazing moment. It's one of the most extraordinary statements any president has made. And because you know. what it means is that the president of the United States is making a partnership with the outside movement, the that's civil exactly rights movement right. that's pushing in against the government. And those are moments, as I was saying earlier, when a movement is there and you've got a leader who's able to channel it. Yeah. And then after the We Shall Overcome part of the speech, then he talks about Catula again. And he said that, and he talked about how in 1928, when he was young, he had taught at this Mexican-American school. He had seen the pain of prejudice on these kids' faces. Mm -hmm. And he just wanted to fire ambition in the kids. And he never thought then that he would have the power that he had now to do something for the sons and daughters of those kids. And he said, well, I have the power now, and I mean to use it. And I, it was incredible. And he even admitted that he, he knew he lost the South in that moment. He talks about it right after. Yeah, he knew. He said, I mean, he was told, you're going to lose the South for a generation. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, that's acceptable if this would happen. Amazing. So the incredible thing that happened at the end of his life, like five or six weeks before he died, the civil rights papers opened up at his library, 
and he wanted to give a speech there so badly, but he had had a heart attack again months before that, mm -hmm. was using an oxygen tank, really was not well at all, had pain most of the day, and he insisted on going. And he comes up the steps, um, and he has to take a nitroglycerin pill when he comes up, haltingly. Everybody can see that he's not well. But then again, he gives a speech that night, and he says, all the civil rights leaders were there. They were going to have a two-day symposium. He said, I don't want you just going over what we did. We didn't do nearly enough. I'm ashamed that we didn't do more. Until the black and the white stand on equal ground, we shall not be finished. And then he reprises, we shall overcome. And then six weeks later, he died. But mm. that was his final public statement. Amazing. Um, let me ask you one last question. We have some questions from the audience, but I wanted to ask you, what were, what were the biggest surprises that maybe you learned? Because you know so much about these figures. Was there anything that that really surprised you about any of these people? Oh, there was so much that really did. I mean, I guess... Is there one that really sticks out maybe the most? Well, you know, I think to some extent for FDR, FDR was rather a late bloomer, you know, mm -hmm. unlike the others. And I didn't know much about his early campaigning or anything, but... He was not a particularly interesting student at Groton or Harvard or Columbia Law sure. School. He was working in a Wall Street firm. And then somebody comes to him and says, we'd like you to run for a safe Democratic seat in the state legislature. And that's not because he's shown the makings of a leader, but because he um, had a wealthy mother and he had the Roosevelt name. And like you were saying earlier, the Republicans and Democrats, they might think that he's old Teddy. Yeah. But in fact, in Kim Burns' documentary, he almost looks like a figure of ridicule at the right. time. No, I mean, like was, kids make fun of him. Yeah, and no, all he, that he's, not, he's not. Yeah. But then something happens. And this is what I think was the most meaningful part in some ways of, of learning about them when they were young. He gets out on that campaign trail and he's absolutely natural at it. He loves yeah. it. He loves listening to people. He, he asks them about themselves. And he wasn't a great speaker at first. Eleanor said he would pause so much when he first, she was afraid he would never go on. But by the end of the campaign, he was talking so long, they had to drag him off the stage. But he found... Like Obama. Like, mm. <laughs> that's true. That's right. Uh, um, <laughs> no, I know. Speaking slowly, where yeah. is he going? But mm -hmm. all of these guys found, and I think it's something we all hope for ourselves, there's a philosopher, William James, who said, you can understand a character best when they find that voice within that says, this is the real me. So I'd always, I just hadn't known that it took Franklin Roosevelt a longer period of time yeah. to become a politician and understand right. this is what I want to be. And for each one of them, there were moments when, um, when that happens and, and I hadn't thought about it before. So sure. it was a pretty exciting thing. You find your vocation and you know that for all the trials and tribulations of it, this is what you want to be. And just, hoping that more young people now, and this is a, a hope for now and the awakening of our, our country right now, that more women are running for office by absolute numbers than ever before, who never did before. Young people are more interested in politics. Mm -hmm. yeah. We've got to hope, we've got to hope that politics can become an honorable vocation again. Yes. And that people will want to, in a democracy, be in public service. And I think it's beginning to happen. And I, I only feel optimistic about what's going on. You can't be the other way. There's no, I, no point. Yes, I believe it becomes an honorable profession when we put honorable people in. And that's, we <laughs> yes. have to find those honorable yes, people. Exactly. You are right. So let's do They're that. out there. They're I, out here. I think so. Uh, all right, should we have some questions for um, Doris Kearns Goodwin? Yes, the first question. Uh, are Lincoln, FDR, Kennedy, and Johnson turning over in their graves right now? I, I think what they would all be sad about right now is the extraordinary hyper-partisanship that we are experiencing. The fact that senators in this Kavanaugh hearing said terrible things about each other, the fact that 
President Trump, when he was um, talking about the Democrats, he said they're horrible, horrible people. You know, the fact that um, that the Dr. Ford was mocked by the president and the mm. president and the Congress um, turned, you know, turned away from what might have been a fuller investigation. Um, but more importantly, I think the fact that the country is so divided. I mean, obviously, Lincoln would say it was divided then. In fact, you had partisan newspapers then. You only read your own partisan newspaper. So the facts would be entirely different if you're reading a Democratic or a Whig paper. Um, alternate facts. Alternate facts with yeah. the end, but it didn't turn out well when we have that kind of division. Mm -hmm. And I think if they all came back, they would just somehow say, you know, this has to stop. Maybe we've hit rock bottom. I think this last week, everybody, whatever side you're on, could have to feel that this is not the country that we want it to be. And oh, God, I wish these guys could come back and just go and talk to everybody in power right now and say, stop it. This has to somehow move in another direction. Yeah. Next question. I saw Brian Cranston in this theater a year ago when his memoir came out. I hear you were an advisor to the making of the movie all the way, but who played LBJ. Can you share any stories from that? Oh. Yes, Brian Cranston played LBJ. He was fantastic. He was fantastic. In that. So, yeah. first, before he played LBJ in the HBO movie, he played LBJ in Boston at the Harvard Theater and then in New York. Then in Broadway, right? And then in mm -hmm. Broadway, yes. Yeah. So he came up to visit my husband and me, really more my husband, and we showed him all the first drafts of all the speeches my husband had written. And my husband was there during the glory days. He was wow. there in 64 and 65, finally left over the war in Vietnam. But Brian Cranston just absorbed that knowledge. He was wonderful. And so we got to be friendly with him. We went to the premieres. And then when they were doing the film, I became a consultant on the film. And the one scene I was proud to have, have suggested that they had, they use. And if any of you saw it, you might remember the scene. Johnson had this ridiculous car that he would take people in. And at the top of a hill, down toward the LBJ Lake, the so named LBJ Lake, the car would go down. You'd be in with him. And he would have the Secret Service say, you know, Mr. President, the brakes aren't working too well. And then you'd go careening down into the lake, and it becomes an amphibious car. But I remember when he took me on it, he was so mad at me because I didn't scream. I figured I'd be all right. I'm with the president. He said, what's the matter with you Harvard people? Don't you have enough sense to scream? But anyway, there is a scene in there where Humphrey is taken with LBJ on the car, and he goes into the water, and you see his back with his suit on. It's a yeah. really funny scene. But anyway, I went to um, the filming of when they were filming from here in, L in, in LA, LA, and they had planned it so that I would see Brian in a particular scene. So as LBJ, I'd seen him in the play, but somehow the makeup when he was in the mm -hmm. movie was even more, and I just saw him up closer. So they ca he calls me into the bedroom, and LBJ is sitting there with his pajamas on, and he, and he says, Doris, come here and sit by my side. I walked in. I thought I was going to faint. I thought he was absolutely alive wow. again. It was it's unbelievable. It's been surreal. Yeah. It was really weird. It was great, though. Now, he, if he, he had asked you to dance, that really would have been strange. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with his, with his striped pajamas on, dancing. Yes. That would have been pretty funny. Yeah. But he did a fabulous job. Yeah. I mean, he showed the combination of the, you know, the, the, the force and the crudeness and the conviction, yeah, everything, he and the political skill. He very intimidating on purpose. There was the apocryphal story. I say apocryphal because I assume that it's true, that the reporter tells about being down at the ranch. LBJ, he had just, LBJ did not like him or whatever, had him hop in the car with him, drove away. LBJ gets out of the car, goes over to a tree, pulls down his pants, you know, does his thing right in front of the reporter just to make him feel uncomfortable or whatever. Well, he, he had ways of doing that. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, let's still. not bring that part of politics back. <laughs> not tonight, not with this dignified yes, group. Yes, exactly. Has news all the time as fast, and, as fast as we can get it been good for journalism? What was the question? Wait, has, go say it again. Has news all the time as fast as we can get it been good for journalism? Can't hear the last few. Has words. it done what to journalism? Has it been good for journalism? Oh, oh like the twenty-four hour news cycle. Correct. There's no question. It's not good for journalism. I mean, I think you know when I look back at the muckrakers during the turn of the twentieth century, these great investigative reporters, they were given sometimes a year or two to do their research and present their stories that would then show the corruption, perhaps, of Standard Oil or the corruption of the railroads. But they waited until they had the facts straight, and when they would then present it, the country responded. The sentiment was such that they were able to get legislation passed through the Congress. I mean, what's happening now, it's not just the news, it's everybody who just decide that they're going to, whatever they're feeling at the moment, they're going to say it, and it gets put on the broadcast. I mean, one of the great things that Lincoln did when he got angry with somebody, he would write what he called a hot letter to the person, and all of his anger would come out, and then he'd put the letter aside, hoping he would cool down psychologically and never need to send it. So that the famous case of that is when General Meade failed to follow up with General Lee's army after the victory at Gettysburg. He was so depressed that he hadn't done what he'd been asked to do that he wrote a huge letter to him saying, I'm immeasurably distressed, you didn't do what I asked you to do, the war is going to go on year after year. But then he knew it would paralyze the general in the field, so he put it aside. It was never even seen until the 20th century when his papers are open and underneath is a notation, never sent and never signed. Hmm. After the book came out, Team of Rivals, I got a letter from a CEO of a company, and he said, Lincoln saved me, and he said that he had heard that a subordinate had done something wrong, he had written him a long, tough email, then he just thought, you know what, I'll just put it in save and not send it right now, and he found out the next day that he had not done what he thought he did, and so he said it saved him. Think of how many things people have said now in emails or instantaneous comments right. that the tweets have made, which then become the rising news story, and, and they hurt people, or they say things that aren't true, and then they direct the news that way. I don't know what we're going to do about it, except it has to be a discipline on the part of people, even young people who say things in emails that then hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, there has to be a way that thought and recognition of what words can mean. Words can inspire, but words can really hurt. And we have to recognize that and, and come to grips with it. I have a, a follow-up on that. I because sometimes I think we like to think that history was different, but in many ways it may have been more like in ways we just don't know, you know, or may have been forgotten. But I wonder about that, because I always say, you know, Caesar was stabbed on the Senate floor, so it's not like politicians have been great in the past. But, um, <clears throat> right, how long ago is that? But um, this idea of weaponized language, you know, of of as they call it, the politics of personal, personal destruction and the way that people are really just destroyed with language. And by destroyed, like whole careers are taken away, it seems like. Is that a new thing or? No, I, I mean, I think, I think it really is. I mean, I think it's just, it, it goes back to the question too, the speed at which things can be then right. disseminated. It's the speed really too. It really is. And, yeah. then, and then all of a sudden, once something is said about a person, then, then the, everybody gets in on it. You know, then everybody else comes forward and says something. And, um, and, and there, there has to be some sort of decorum. I mean, it's incredible that in the 19th century, if you said something on the Senate floor that was at, at all negative, you'd be censured. You'd be formally censured. Yeah. 
And now the things that, even in those hearings, the things that each side said about the other side, it, it was impossible to imagine that you were friendly with these guys in the Senate. You, there's only a hundred of you and you're there every day together. You feel that way about your fellow human beings. Um, the anger that's felt on each side of the party right now is so extreme that I don't know, I don't know what's going to stop Where do you it. think it's coming from? Why do, you, why do you think there's anger as opposed to just disagreement? Well, you know, partly what I think's happened is that it's almost as if you've been at war so long you mm -hmm. don't remember what peace is like. It's been mm -hmm. so long since they've worked together on any major issues and that they don't know what that feels like anymore and they're playing to their base and they're playing to the, maybe they're angry about their whole situation. It can't be fun to be a congressman or a senator anymore the same way it used to be. I mean, when you used to feel like you were doing something that was going to be remembered by children, how can these people feel good about what they're doing? There's some mm -hmm. in there that may be trying to do that. But, um, I mean, it's still, to give us some solace from the past, I mean, I was talking about this the other day, it's not really solace because it, it does make you realize things could have been worse, like you say with Julius Caesar. I mean, there's a moment when, which reminds me a lot of these hearings in a very extreme way. In the 1850s, there was a Southern congressman named Preston Brooks, and he came to the Senate floor and actually hit the Massachusetts Senator Sumner over the head with his cane. And as Sumner tried to get up, he just kept hitting him down. He fell unconscious, and he was really out of out of office for months and months and months. But that's not the important thing. What was important was that in the South, Preston Brooks was made a hero. He was given a golden cane. That's and all amazing. these people are carrying canes around. But in the North, it so mobilized the um, anti-slavery movement that they're finally out in the streets. They're talking to each other. They, they, they formed a Republican Party, which gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually, Abraham Lincoln comes out of that wow. sadness. So again, maybe something will come out of this if we all realize, as I think many people did with the acrimony of this week, this can't get worse. And there's somebody, there'll be some people out there and there'll be citizens out there, they're going to say, we have to do something about this. And if we can produce the next Abraham Lincoln and the next anti-slavery movement, it almost might be worth this acrimony right now. <laughs> I know, we'll see. Yeah. Do we have uh, another question? Yeah. How okay. much longer do you think the two-party system can last? Well, you know, what was the power of the two-party system before was that the parties could nominate their candidates at the convention, and they had the money to support the candidate. That's gone now with the primaries. Mm -hmm. um, it's gone now with people being able to raise money on their own and the entrepreneurial system of the PACs and all of that. So it's surprising to me that the independents haven't gotten more sway right now mm -hmm. um, because it seems to me it would be a natural thing for people to feel a plague on both your houses and let's find a way in between these parties that we can move. And maybe there are more people turning independent. I mean, there's Republicans turning independent. There were some Democrats. And I, I think it doesn't have the power. It's, it's probably habit that this exists for so long. Before that, it was really hard to be a third party candidate or to be an independent because, you know, you had the whole weight of the party behind you, but the mm -hmm. party doesn't have the same weight it did. And I don't know, people, I'm not sure that in the 19th century, people identified as a Republican or a Democrat as if it were their religion, as if it were their, that politics yeah. was the great sporting events of the time. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt's people never forgave Franklin Roosevelt for becoming a Democrat. Exactly right? so. No, <laughs> yes. that's right. So, right. and I'm not sure... Well, maybe in our highly partisan world today, that identification has gotten stronger in a weird sense. 
You know, I, I don't know if it's Democrat or Republican so much as it's right and left, I think. I think that's probably right. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Um, but fights within families or you go to bars right now and they won't yeah. even turn politics on because they don't want to have people at the bar not able to talk to each other. Yeah. So um, something's, something's got to give. Isn't that a song? Something's got to give. It is now if it wasn't before. <laughs> All right, one more question. Okay, and our final question uh, for the, actually, it's, let's just come, do two of them if Great. you mind. One Sounds is, awesome. how well does business leadership really translate into presidential leadership? Oh, good question. And the final question will be, tell us what you enjoy reading for pleasure. I will do both things. Can I first uh, yes. take a quote from your book yes. uh, to set this up? Uh, it's when you uh, talk about when Hoover was uh, trying to handle, well, this was right before the economic crisis, right before the Great Depression. <laughs> he said, Americans were nearer to the final triumph over poverty than ever before in the history of the world. This is right before the stock market crash. Right. It wasn't right. a good <laughs> statement to make. Yes. But you mm -mm. know what? I think, mm -mm. I think nowadays, mm -mm. if what is leadership about? It's about human nature. It's whether or not you can create a team of people who can argue with you and question your assumptions. It's whether or not you can control your emotions. It's whether you can communicate with people. It's whether you can mobilize people toward a common good. I think if we had a business leader who had had a team and then had hundreds of thousands of people working for the company, a global company with all the complications of shareholders and customers, that that kind of business leader it could translate to political leadership. I think the difficulty for President Trump was that he really didn't have that kind of a leadership set of experiences. It was him and his branding, and that's proved successful in many ways with his base. But that experience of having to lead a team and learn how to compromise and collaborate with them, I think business guys can learn that. Business is, is stepping in the vacuum today in a lot of ways, taking a, taking a stand on social issues. So I, I, whether or not this experience of Mr. Uh, and maybe it'll make more businessmen get into office or try to, or maybe it'll make fewer because the lack of political experience has certainly shown in this ex in this instance. Do you think we'll have more non-politicians running for president? I think we may have really? more non-politicians, and, mm -hmm. I, I, and that's not a problem if you've had experience in leading. Mm -hmm. You cannot get into this job and then not have a series of of, of learning experiences from from all of that what lead leaderships do and grow in office learning humility, learning empathy, learning all those things by that. So, but right now politics is in such a disarray that I think people will be drawn to somebody, but I think it would be a mistake if suddenly all these celebrities start running for yeah. office or sporting yeah. those people. Right. Or they figure that I'm a celebrity so I can translate that. That doesn't translate, but leadership may indeed translate. I agree. Well, what was the second part of the question? What do you well, read for pleasure? Well, that we'll I end read on mysteries that. at night for pleasure. I mean, somehow, I don't know what it mysteries, is about yeah. wanting to read about somebody being murdered and trying to figure out <laughs> what it is. But um, just recently, I've just read all of John Grisham's books, and I got really lucky to, he was up here in Boston, up to my hometown, with a group of his friends, and one of them was a, having a bucket list. He was in his 80s, who wanted to meet various people in various cities. And luckily, that older guy wanted to meet me, so Grisham was along with it. So it was so much fun to talk to him about the books. But the most thing I do for pleasure is to watch baseball. Um, I, I, Go Dodgers! Uh, well, wait, wait. I don't know if I can tell you the story, Dodgers. but um, I was originally a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Oh, um, there you go. Uh, oh, yeah. There you and, go. 
I think my love of history came from the fact that my father taught me that mysterious art of keeping score while listening to baseball games. So mm -hmm. when he came home from Brooklyn during the day, we grew up in Long Island, I, had, I could record for him with those miniaturized symbols every inning of every play of the Dodger game that had taken place that afternoon, and I would tell him the whole story. I now realize in excruciating detail probably, but he made me feel I was telling him a fabulous story. It makes you think there's something magic about history to keep your father's attention. He never told me when I was only six that all of this was actually described in great detail in the sports pages of the newspapers the next day. So I thought without me, he wouldn't even know what happened to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Of course, then, you would probably say, now when Honus Wagner, 40 years ago. <laughs> anyway, but then the Dodgers were ripped away from us to Los Angeles. And I couldn't even follow baseball for a while until um, I went to Fenway Park when I was at Harvard, so reminiscent of old Ebbets Field, and a team so reminiscent of the old Brooklyn Dodgers. We'd almost always win, but lose in the end. And the I bones. became an equally irrational Red Sox fan. And we've now had, we've had season tickets now for more than 35 years. And I must say, um, I, when I go to Fenway Park sometimes, my father died before I got married and had my three sons. Yeah. So I have been able, when I go to Fenway Park now, to imagine myself a young girl once more, when my sons are by my side, in the, in the days of my youth with Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, yeah. fabulous days. And, and then when I see my sons sitting in the place where my father once sat, I feel this invisible loyalty and love linking my sons to the grandfather whose face they never had a chance to see, but whose heart and soul they have come to know through all the stories I have told, which I think is why in the end I, I had loved this curious love of history that I've had my whole life, allowing me to spend a lifetime looking back into the past, allowing me to believe that the private people we've loved and lost in our families and the public figures we've respected in history, just as Abraham Lincoln and all these guys wanted to believe, really can live on so long as we pledge to tell and to retell the stories of their lives. I'm so glad I could do that with you tonight. Thank you so very much. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, yes. May I just say, you are a national treasure. I'm so happy to meet you and to spend this time with you. The name of the book, you guys, is Leadership in Turbulent Times. It really is a great read. One of the funnest things about this book you can move around from chapters to chapters and, and look at, at some of the things in isolation. It's such a good book. Pick it up. Leadership in Turbulent Times. Please help me thank again the wonderful Doris Kearns Goodwin, everyone. Thank you very much.